Okay, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Really, what we're doing this morning is this is a, a continuation of the Advent series that we started probably six weeks ago. So we're just going to continue on until Easter Sunday as we engage in a life of the Lord Jesus Christ series, as we look at different vignettes, different passages about the life of Jesus through the Gospels that will culminate on Easter Sunday. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, and they brought him up to Jerusalem, to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, opens, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother, they marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the context of Christmas and how God offered up to one of his ancient kings a sign to confirm to him that God existed and God was with him and that God was strong to save. Okay, that was King Ahaz. God had promised to this ancient king that he would give him a sign to show that he was with him. And so I did a little survey, if you'll recall. I called some of the youth of our church and I asked them, remember, if you were in Ahaz's position, if God offered to give you a sign 
that, that confirmed he existed and was with you, what would you choose? Do you remember what some of those, those things were? They were pretty creative. You know, a couple people said, you know, I'd like to fly for a day. That would be pretty impressive to me. Remember we said that. A couple others say, I'd like to be invisible for 24 hours or something like that. That would be impressive. Um, I liked all the things that they said. Interestingly, amazingly, God gave a sign that far surpassed anything that we could ever ask or imagine. Even though that ancient king in stubborn unbelief refused to accept the sign, God in his graciousness gave a sign anyway. Do you remember what that sign was? What was the supernatural sign that the God of the Hebrews was with his people? It was the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was the sign that God gave to his people. But if you're Mary and Joseph, that would have been very difficult to wrap your mind and heart around the fact that your child was that child. You know, I mean, just put yourself in their position. You're a humble people. You are an obscure people. You're an impoverished people. You're a people, a couple that has no status. And yet God Almighty has entered space and time in your son. Jesus would be the Christ. That would have been very difficult to understand, internalize, believe, wrap your mind around. And so in my view, that's why Luke goes into great detail when he describes what happens at the presentation of Jesus when Luke does not go into great detail at the circumcision of Jesus. So in Luke 2, 21, Luke, almost in passing, mentions the circumcision of Jesus with almost no details. And then next, Luke describes the dedication or presentation of Jesus in the temple from Luke 2, 22, through Luke 2.40. He goes into great detail. So I ask you, why does he go into great detail when it comes to the presentation of Jesus in the temple when he did not do the same thing with Jesus' circumcision? Was one more important than the other? No. I would submit to you there's a very, very good reason. Luke goes into the detail that he does that we're going to look at because... That's where Jesus's identity, his role as the Christ, was confirmed and reaffirmed. Because I'm telling you, if you're Mary and Joseph, despite the fact that Gabriel had appeared to you supernaturally, despite the fact that you had borne witness to a virgin birth, I guarantee you this would have been hard for them to truly understand and come to grips with. And so some things are said at the presentation of Jesus that they needed to hear that would have been greatly confirming to them and that's why I think Luke goes into great detail. He wants you and me to hear what Simeon and Anna have to say. That's what we get in this text. Okay, verses 22 through 24. Let's look at our text. And when the time came for their purification, 
according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Quote, every male who first opens the womb, that's the firstborn, shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there are two things going on here that deserve some explanation. The first is Mary's purification process. It's about 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And when women gave birth in Israel, um, due to um, the fact of the, the letting of the blood, and there could be, you know, just in terms of, of discharges and things like that, ritually speaking, in the context of Old Testament Israel, after a mother gave birth for a certain period of time, she was viewed to be unclean. And then, according to the law of God, certain steps had to be taken in order for her to be declared clean again and then readmitted to worship in Israel. So that's one thing that's going on, okay? And the law allows different kinds of sacrifices to be given, okay, in order to be purified according to like your financial means. And so if you were a family of great means, you could have offered a sacrificial lamb. And that would have helped the purification process. But if you didn't have means, and if you were a family stricken by poverty, then you could give two small birds. And that's exactly what we see Mary and Joseph giving. They give two small birds, which was an indicator of their poverty, reinforcing the fact that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who know their need. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who see their need. The Lord Jesus Christ was not given to the kings of the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ was given to Mary and Joseph, the most humble and meekest of people. That is who the gospel is for, for those who see their need. These birds were also given so that the life of the firstborn son would be redeemed. Okay? Why is it that the life of the firstborn son in every family of God blessed a family with a son. Why is it that the life of the firstborn son had to be redeemed? In other words, those two birds would be accepted in the place of the life of the boy. That was a pedagogical tool that the Lord had established in the Old Testament to teach the Israelites. What do you think that taught the Israelites? What was the 10th plague in Egypt? The culmination, the hardest hitting of all the plagues, the plague that broke the back of Pharaoh and set his people free. It was the plague on the firstborn son. And there was only one way for your son to survive that event. If the blood of the lamb was placed on the doorpost of your house, in that case, that lamb, what would that lamb, what would the function of that lamb have been in your house? That lamb would have redeemed your son. That lamb, the blood of that lamb would have saved your son. That lamb would have been accepted in the place of your son. And so after that event, to help the Israelites remember what God had done after that, 
all the firstborn sons would have to be redeemed to teach the people how God had delivered them with the mighty hand. And so that's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. About 40 days after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph traveled about six miles north um, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to do this. Okay, but Luke's primary interest is in what comes next. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, and I imagine he was very well known, okay, and very well regarded. I think that um, Luke could have just mentioned his name and people would have known about his reputation. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, consolation in this context means comfort. Okay, consolation consoles, okay? Not to be confused with the way that I understood the term consolation growing up. Ryan Friend, my tennis buddy, is going to resonate with me on this. If you played in a tennis tournament and you were unfortunate enough to lose in the first round, okay, you went into the consolation bracket which was the bracket for losers, okay? So it wasn't really that consoling, okay? Because you were in the back draw and that wasn't a good thing. This morning I was reminded not all consolation is the same, sadly. This morning, precious Elizabeth Libby is brought to me so that I could make good on my word. Because a couple weeks ago at the Christmas Eve service, Elizabeth Libby was a little reluctant to get up and sing, okay? And so I told precious Elizabeth Libby that Uncle David would give her a treat if she did it. She could just name it. So she named M&Ms that Uncle David was supposed to have this morning. Did not have them this morning. And I looked at her little blue eyes and Courtney came up with some, a consolation of sorts, but it just wasn't the same. Simeon, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I guarantee you, that was a comforting thing. That was a thing that was going to bring immense comfort to the people of God who still were functionally in a kind of exile. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. He wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a special promise the Holy Spirit made to him. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, somehow the Holy Spirit said, this is the one. And Simeon says, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I mean, what a moment for Simeon. Who, there is no doubt Simeon would have been a man highly revered, highly respected. During non-feast days, if you will, Jerusalem was pretty small. I think Simeon was a fixture there. People would have known him. And for him to do this, 
for him to provide this outside confirmation that you're not crazy. Gabriel, he really appeared to you. You really have given birth to the Christ of the living God, a light to the Gentiles and hope for the people of Israel. This would have been incredibly encouraging to Joseph and Mary, but there's more. The text indicates, okay, even the ESV, even though the ESV does not do a good job at really saying this, but Luke is explaining this in such a way that just as Simeon is saying these things, that this well-known prophetess name, Anna, who is incredibly devout, she shows up at the exact same time. What an amazing coincidence. Okay, let's look at what she says in verse 36. This made Joseph and Mary just marvel at what was happening. Verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. So she's greatly advanced in age. In this context, scholars think that maybe the um, average lifespan was around 37 or 40 years old. That was it. This woman is, is almost in her 90s. The text said she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That's a little hyperbolic. She was there all the time is what he's saying. She's focused on the things of the Lord. Verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, what Luke means at that very moment, and she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, the consolation of Israel, and the redemption of Jerusalem were synonymous terms. The comfort of God's people had finally arrived. This child would bring comfort and consolation by redeeming them. This was the Christ, the anointed King of God. And so regardless of what they had experienced, this was a needed confirmation, a reaffirmation of who this boy was. Okay, let's now shift to what I believe to be the literary center of the text. Now, this text has lots of layers of meaning, but I think what we're going to look at now is the literary center. This is the heart of what Luke wants us to, um, to think about and to be challenged by. Okay, our story begins in verse 22 with what the law required. So I think our passage, it's bookended. Okay, in verse 22, by what the law requires. And then in verse 39, how the law was fulfilled. So first book in, verse 22, what the law required. Purification, redemption. Verse 39, the law was fulfilled. And then right in the middle is the literary center. This is Luke's focus. Simeon's prophecy. What he says to Mary. Verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And then it's as if he turns to Mary, his mother. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed 
That, in a nutshell, is going to be the ministry of this little boy. In a nutshell, in summary, that's it. So in addition to getting a confirmation, a reaffirmation, this was going to be a needed clarification because they were not expecting this part. And their conception, the Jewish conception of the Christ was going to be this conquering king that delivered his people. But what Simeon is saying is, okay, there's a lot more going on here. In addition to all of the positive and the hope, there's going to be great difficulty and suffering involved in the ministry of this boy. So in addition to a confirmation, they get this clarification. So this prophecy from Simeon reminds me of a little scene that I saw from The Hobbit last week, okay? You know, they're showing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and all those kind of like on constant reruns. I'm also reading The Hobbit just for fun. And so um, one of my uh, favorite actors is the guy who plays Bilbo. You know, Martin Freeman, that British actor, like he's just, his sense of humor is amazing. He's very funny, great timing. So he's Bilbo. And so if you haven't ever read The Hobbit or seen the movies, Bilbo Baggins kind of represents the most ordinary or boring of men, okay? The last person in the world that you would ever expect to get invited on some grand adventure. He's the last guy ever, okay? It would be like if I was in the story, okay? He gets invited on this grand adventure to go get this treasure, okay? And the dwarves who are there, who are asking him to do this, they give him a contract. Who here has ever seen the movie and they watch Bilbo read the contract? Just raise your hand. I feel sorry for y'all. Y'all need to watch this. Get to know this a little bit. At any rate, the Martin Freeman character, he, he, he reads the contract and there's some good things in the contract, but there's some clarification, difficult parts in the contract. So. I can't really emulate what he does, but so in the movie, he's reading the contract, and he's kind of encouraged initially. He reads, he, he's kind of mumbling to himself, Bilbo does, and he reads, up to but not exceeding one-fourteenth of total profit, if any. That would be his share. He's like, that's a good thing. That's fair. That's good. Then he mumbles to himself. He says, oh, Present company shall not be liable for injuries, including but not limited to lacerations, he reads, evisceration, and then he reads incineration, okay, and he indicates he's feeling a bit faint, okay, this is not necessarily what he had in mind. Simeon is giving the fine print. Yes, your son is the Christ, the son of the living God, the hope of Israel. Okay, but he's going to cause the fall and rising of many in Israel, and he is going to reveal the hearts of the Lord's people. Simeon is giving the fine print, which is amazing. Look at the end of verse 35. The end of verse 35 in this, in this prophecy. What does this mean? So after the parenthetical remark, where Simeon says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. Also, can you imagine what it would have been like to witness the execution of your son? Can't even begin 
to fathom that. Certainly a sword would pierce through her heart and her soul. Then Simeon says, so that he's going to be a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. You know, what does that mean? Thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. See, all of the Israelites claimed to know and love the God of Israel. All of the Israel, Israelites claimed to know and love the God of their forefathers, okay? But according to Simeon's prophecy, their response to Jesus would reveal whether or not they actually did. Jesus was going to be their barometer of belief in God. You can't love God if you don't love Jesus. Okay, what that's kind of foreshadowing is to know and love God is to know and love his Christ, the Lord Jesus. According to Simeon's prophecy, the people's response to Jesus would reveal whether or not they really did. And just like in our day, many people claim to know and love God. That was the story of my life for most of my growing up. We, Nate and Chris Bennett and I, interviewed um, a potential pastoral intern at Providence, a young man named, named Chris Coleman who uh, just graduated from Texas A&M and now he's prayerfully considering or going to RTS Dallas. And so we had a lunch with him to get to know him, and so we were all sharing our stories with him, our testimony in brief, and so I had the privilege of, of kind of giving a brief overview of my testimony and how I describe myself as your classic cultural Christian in middle and high school. My family was a church-going family, but I did not know the Lord Jesus. I did not know him at all. I was a go-through-the-motions kind of Christian. I was a Christian that showed up at church about 50% of the time, couldn't wait for the service to end, but I viewed myself as a Christian of sorts. I did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I did not know God. I was as lost a boy as I could be until the Lord brought me to himself in college. That's the story of many people who claim to know and love God, but they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you resonate with that opening devotional from Spurgeon, okay, where he describes the Apostle Paul's love for the Lord when he says, Beloved, this alone is the true life of a Christian, its source, its sustenance, its fashion, its end. Everything is gathered up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your feeling? Is that your view? Spurgeon asks, do you believe Jesus is the pearl of great price that you would give up anything that you might have him? Is he the fairest of them all? He, is he the most cherished thing in your heart and your life? That's what Simeon's prophecy is getting at. That's how it's gonna reveal our hearts. Do you have that kind of love and affection for Jesus? In the book of John, John tells us, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. Jesus is at the right hand of God. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. How do we know God? Through the Lord Jesus. 
His life, his death, his resurrection, his rule, his reign. That's how we know God. Okay, I'm going to end with this. I'm, I'm, the, the plane is coming down for landing here. Just this week, I was having a friend, lunch with a friend who was listening to a narration of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, and it's, it's wonderful to read, but he loved listening to it. A narrated version of Mere Christianity. Well, also... C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful little, little essay, it's just outstanding, entitled, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? Um, C.S. Lewis is as helpful as anyone I've ever read when it comes to things like this. He wrote an essay called, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? Here's an excerpt from Lewis's essay. I, I just, it's, it's, in my view, it's hard to say it. It's hard to say it better than this. Lewis writes, there are people who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, but who do believe that his teaching exhibits truth at its purest and best. They believe the teaching of Jesus to be full of wisdom. And so he was interacting with people on a regular basis who didn't believe Jesus was the Christ, but believed we could derive moral value from Jesus' teaching. He says this, this is some of the most penetrating things I have ever read. He writes, But how can they believe that when Jesus went about saying to people, quote, I forgive your sins. Now it is quite natural for you to forgive a man who has done something to you. Thus if somebody cheats me out of something, it is quite reasonable for me to say, I forgive him and will say no more about it. But what on earth would you say if somebody had cheated you out of five pounds and I said, oh, that's all right, I forgive him? That would be crazy. You'd think that person was a lunatic. He writes, then there is a curious thing which seems to slip out almost by accident. On one occasion, this man, Jesus, is sitting, looking down on Jerusalem from the hill beside it. And suddenly, out comes an extraordinary remark. Jesus said, quote, I keep on sending you prophets and wise men. In other words, he is claiming to be the power that all through the centuries is sending wise men and leaders into the world. And nobody comments on it. And nobody argues with it. Here's another thing. In almost every other religion, there are unpleasant observances like fasting. But this man suddenly remarks one day, no one need fast while I am here. But this man says these things. Who is the man? Who is the man who remarks, no one need fast while I am here? Who is this man who remarks that his, that his mere presence suspends all normal rules? Who is the person who can suddenly tell the school that they can have a day off just by his own authority? Who would say such a thing? He ends with this. Jesus says things that are different from what any other teacher has ever said. Others say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But he says, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the life, and no one can reach it except 
through me. He says, come to me, everyone who is carrying a heavy load, and I will set it right. Your sins, all of them, all are wiped out. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am life. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. C.S. Lewis writes, that's the issue. That is the issue. And the final analysis, what is your view of Jesus Christ? The purpose of Jesus' ministry is to reveal what's in our hearts. Beloved, what can be said of you and what can be said of me? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, the more we know about Jesus, the more we learn about him, the more in awe that we are, the more we learn about the Lord Jesus, his, his birth and his life, the more we love him. To know him is to love him and revere him, adore him and worship him. Father, in this new year, in 2022, as we, as we meander our way through the Gospels and we learn more about the life of Jesus, as we, as we journey our way through the Gospels and learn more about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us to love him. Help us to serve him. Help us to look more like him. Help us to be conformed more and more in his image, in his likeness, likeness, likeness. Father, help us to be like Anna in the sense that we just, we just have to tell everybody that here is the redemption of Jerusalem. We pray in his matchless name, amen and amen.